Acts chapter 24. So if you have your Bibles, please meet me in Acts 24. The text reads like this. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the, of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming all these things were, all, all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the prophet, by, by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make, and to, and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune came down, I, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that, none, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came down with his, wife, with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. 
when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now before we get into the English reformer, Hugh Latimer, obviously no relation, would often preach to a congregation with King Henry VIII in it. And after one sermon, the king approached Latimer and told him that he had been offended by his sermon. He, he ordered him to, to preach the next Lord's Day as he'd been scheduled to preach, but he ordered him to apologize for the sermon the week gone by. Sunday rolled around, and this is how Hugh Latimer opened his sermon. Hugh Latimer, speaking to himself out loud, do you know before whom you are speaking this day? To the high and the mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend him. Therefore, take heed that you speak not a word to displease, but then consider well, Hugh, do you not know from where you come and with whose message you are sent, the great and mighty God, he who is all present and behold, all your ways are before him and he is able to cast your soul into hell. Therefore, take care that you deliver your message faithfully. Latimer then went on to preach the exact same sermon that he had preached the week before, only with more enthusiasm. When the truth is on your side, and when God is on your side... It doesn't matter who is against you. You can be bold before both kings and colleagues, friends and foes, acquaintances and adversaries. And as Paul stands trial in our passage tonight, the point of the passage really takes the form of the question that Paul asked in Romans chapter 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Answer, no one. Not in the final analysis. Before we look at Acts 24, let me say this, friends. Resist the urge to assume that Acts 24 is nothing more than ancient history. See, we can hear stories of Hugh Latimer facing off with King Henry VIII. We can listen to passages read of, of Paul standing before Felix, and we can shrug our shoulders, and we can say to ourselves, well, that was then, this is now. But friends, there may well come a time when we too are ordered to apologize, and when we too are pressed to recant what we believe, because in the eyes of the world, we are no longer the good guys. A couple of years ago, there was a, a book that was released that was called Being the Bad Guys. And the author makes the observation that there was a time when a Christian was assumed to be a virtuous person, a, 
a moral person, an upstanding person, but now a Christian is thought to be a bigoted person, a narrow-minded person, an intolerant person. And so Acts 24 might not be as irrelevant to our lives as we might think. But again, with the truth on our side and with God on our side, it doesn't matter who is against us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, we've been out, out of Acts for a few weeks, so let me get us back in. In Acts 21, Paul arrived in Jerusalem. And the believers there told Paul that people were spreading rumors about him. Paul, they're, they're saying about you that your gospel tells people to press Control-Alt-Delete on the Old Testament, just renounce Moses, renounce the law. And so they said, listen, we've got some brothers here. They're about to complete a vow. Go to the temple with the brothers and participate in this purification rite. Show them that you are not against the Old Testament. And so Paul did that. But when the adversaries saw Paul in the temple, they, they cried out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, which, by the way, was a lie. So they, they rush at Paul. There's a mob. A mob it, it ensues. Claudius Lysias, the tribune, the Roman soldier, over a thousand other soldiers, comes to his rescue. But the opposition was so great that his only recourse was to send Paul away to Caesarea under the cover of darkness with the protection of Rome and there for him to be tried by Antonius Felix. And so in Acts 24, the religious establishment who had rushed at him follow him all the way down to Caesarea and there's this duel, there's this battle, there's this standoff before Felix. The religious establishment against Paul Paul defending himself. And again, with the truth on Paul's side, with God on his side, no one could bring any charge against God's elect, not in the final analysis anyway. And so I want us to see first the false accusations against Paul. Look with me again at verse 1 to 9 of Acts 24. It says, And after five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders, so down from Jerusalem, and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor, Antonius Felix, their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jew Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out, more, uh, find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So after Tertullus had finished sucking up to Felix in a sort of nauseating way, he brings three accusations against Paul, two of which were false. Accusation number one, Paul stirs up riots. 
And this accusation was both false and genius. Uh, it was false because Paul did see riots, but they weren't his fault. They were the fault of his, of his hearers. And this was genius as well because Rome saw troublemakers as threats to neutralize. Insurrectionists, rebels, rioters, they were all in one category and they had to be stopped. Accusation number two, Paul's a ringleader of the sect that's causing the disruption in the first place, and Felix, wasting your time. Accusation number three, Paul tried to profane the temple, again, which he, he didn't. So friends, since two of the three of these accusations were false, the question then is, what was behind them in the first place? If they were false accusations, then why make the accusations in the first place? And the answer is this, because in Paul's ministry, Jesus' kingdom was crushing theirs. You see, to look at the religious establishment, they looked like they were on God's side. They were offering sacrifices according to the letter of the law. They were tithing mint and dill and cumin. Their clothes were right. Their prayers were right. Their words were were right. But their hearts were false. Why? Because to them, God was a means to a greater platform. A greater platform to recognition and to praise. God was nothing more than the means by which they could be in the spotlight. And we can know that for sure because when God himself arrived in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, they responded by nailing him to a cross. And so they hated Paul because they hated Paul's master. Well, friends, that was them. What about us? Are we happy for Jesus to be glorified whether we are in the spotlight or not? I told you a while ago, didn't I, that I came across a a t-shirt online that had a a quote from Count Zinzendorf. What a name. And the quote just said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. It's one thing to wear the t-shirt. It's another thing altogether to live its message because pride lurks within every soul. And if unchecked, pride will lead you to oppose God even as you, quote unquote, serve him. And that's what was behind their accusations. Not fidelity to the law of God, not a concern about the scriptures, but simply because Jesus' kingdom was crushing their kingdom as Paul preached Christ and him crucified. And as people turned from their sin in Corinth and Thessalonica and Ephesus and and Jerusalem, they served God in order to serve themselves. And so friends, let me say, if you are involved in any ministry at all, in the life of of this church, whether it's Sunday school, personal evangelism, visitation, teaching, preaching, reading in services, serving at Tots Group, leading youth groups. Friends, do it all to the glory of God. Do it all to the glory of God. And I want to share with you a practical way by which you can 
you can train your soul to do that. After you've read God's word, praise God for what showed you most of his glory. I want to give you an example of what this looked like for me this past week. So on the morning that I did most of the heavy lifting for this sermon, one of the passages I read was Ephesians chapter 1. And verses 22 and 23 say this, And he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And that caused me to pray like this. Father, this is Jesus' church. And if there is any good in this church, it's because Jesus as head apportions and assigns the blessing. And if when there are discouragements, Jesus is still the head of the church. And Jesus isn't threatened. And Jesus isn't afraid. And Jesus was the head of the church when Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 1 and Jesus is the head of the church as I study to preach to the church. Help me to be faithful to the head of the church in season and out of season, looking not to me but to him and give to his name the glory. You see, friends, when you put the glory of God before your eyes, all of a sudden you don't care anymore who's in the spotlight. And you don't care if Morris is preaching or if Mark is preaching or if Michael is preaching. All you care about is that Jesus is exalted and that Jesus is made much of and that we all forget about ourselves and look to him and shut our mouths and open our mouths in praise only to him, the head of the church. But you see, since the religious establishment back then wanted to be glorified, they had to get Paul out of the way. They hated him because they hated his glorious Lord. And so we've seen first the false accusations against Paul, but let's come second to the self-defense of Paul. Look at verse 10. It says, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, quote, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call the sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring arms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this, one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul says to, to boil it all down, I went to Jerusalem to worship, not to fight. 
My adversaries can't prove their claims. And what you call a sect, I call the way exactly what Moses and the prophets foresaw and foretold. And when we look at Paul's self-defense before Felix in this moment, you see that he commends for us two ways for us to operate as we seek to spread the gospel as well. In as much as we're able, we're to spread the gospel, number one, beneath the government, and number two, within the stream of orthodoxy. Give me a minute minute to explain what I, I mean. Beneath the government, that is, we are not opposed to law and order. And also within orthodoxy, that is, our gospel is the gospel once for all delivered to the saints. It's nothing novel. It's nothing that every generation has to cook up themselves. No, it has roots down in the very earliest parts of the scriptures. And that's what Paul wanted to assure Felix of. We, we minister beneath the authority of the state. And we minister according to orthodoxy and according to the way. A couple of hundred years ago, there was a con man called Charles Taze Russell. And Russell had a product to sell. Uh, his product was called Miracle Wheat. And he, he promised all of the, the farmers in the United States that if they brought his, bought his Miracle Wheat, then their crops would grow five times taller than, than the rest. Well, obviously, they didn't. And so Charles Taze Russell was sued. He tried a few more cons, and eventually he turned his hand to, to religion. And the, the premise was this. We are going to throw out the last 1,800 years of church history. We're going to start with a blank sheet of paper with only the Bible to lead us. And his studies were called Studies in the Scriptures. And his disciples are with us today. Because they're called the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's how that religion, or that cult rather, got going. You see, when you re reject the law, as Russell did, and when you reject orthodoxy, as Russell did, you no longer have anything to do with the apostolic gospel. And Paul was at pains to operate ben both beneath the law and within orthodoxy. Why? Verse 15, because there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. That will be the day on which every blood-bought child of God will be presented holy and blameless to God, but we will also have to give an account. And our works will either be burnt up like wood, hay, and stubble, or they'll be rewarded. And so we take pains to have a clear conscience before God, not out of fear of being damned, but for our Father's pleasure. And for Him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your master. You've been faithful over a very little. I will set you over much. And so, friends, let me say this. Let your conduct reflect the right standing that is already yours in Jesus. 
because our lives are lived in the shadow of God's judgment seat. And we need to live like we believe that. And we need to take pains not to let anything defile our consciences. We need to guard our hearts because from our hearts flow everything that we do. And if you find that there's something you do or something that you're engaged in or someone that you spend time with that seems to be able to pour a a bucket of ice over the fire of your love for Jesus, then we need to cut it off in order to take pains to have that clear conscience before both God and men. Because this resurrection of both the unjust and the just is coming and it is on the way and it will be here before we know it. Daniel 12 says, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so we come to see, last of all, the double-minded response to Paul. Look at verse 22 with me. It says, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Friends, here we, saw, here we have ourselves a man who could recognize Paul's innocence, initiate gospel conversations, hear enough truth in the gospel to be alarmed by it and then refuse the gospel in the end. That is a terrifying thing. Paul preached to Felix, we're told here, about faith in Christ Jesus. He said, Felix, hear me. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes Felix is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And he reasoned with Felix about self-control. Why? Because Felix had none. Drusilla was his third wife. And he married Drusilla after forcing through her divorce to her first husband. 
And so if he were to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying, Felix, understand that Jesus will have to be Lord of your sex life. He'll have to be Lord of all. Not 40% of it, but all of it. Count the cost, Felix. And Paul reasoned with him about the coming judgment. Morris quoted this morning, didn't he? Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. But even as the great apostle Paul preached, Felix had his mind on money. He had his mind on lining his pockets. Bribery was both illegal for Roman governors and rampant among Roman governors. And perhaps a bribe from Paul occupied his mind for two seconds as Paul preached. And then three seconds. And then ten seconds. And then one minute. And then it was all he could think about as Paul preached the gospel. And so I want to speak to those of you who are young, or I want to speak to those of you who are hearing the gospel perhaps for the first time. And what I want to say to you is this, respond to the gospel while it still alarms you. Because you can get to a point after you've hardened your heart so many times, after so many years, That it no longer sways you. It no longer influences you. It no longer troubles you. It no longer alarms you. It is just one irrelevant message among thousands. And that was Felix in the end. Preferring money to the infinite riches of Jesus. Preferring popularity among the Jews to God's well done in Christ. And friends, the reality is that you can dig your heels so far in that even when a tidal wave of judgment is hurtling towards you, there is nowhere for you to go. But to us believers, notice that Paul understood who he was speaking to. And he applied the gospel accordingly. This is something that's so easy for us to miss. You see that Paul reasoned with Felix again about self-control because he had no self-control. And his out-of-control desires were the very sins that were keeping him out of the kingdom of heaven. And so he knew Felix enough to know where the gospel stung. And that's where he pressed it. And if we would be effective in sharing the gospel, we need to know whom we're speaking. Which sin or which sins in particular are barring people from the kingdom of God. And there's so much to be said for listening before talking. So that when we do talk, what we say is that much more effective. But notice too that Paul actually took the opportunities that came his way. It would have been so easy, wouldn't it, for him to have downplayed the gospel in this moment. 
And for him to say, oh, Felix, this is no big deal. This is all a big misunderstanding. Jesus is just Lord for me, not Lord over all. And maybe that would have meant less jail time, but Paul was just happy to preach Christ crucified wherever and to whomever. A friend of mine was traveling with the CEO of his company recently, and they were in the airport getting closer to the front of the line, and just as they were about to give in their ticket, the CEO said to my friend, hey, let let me see your ticket, and so he gave him his ticket, and he swapped his economy ticket with his business class ticket, and so for 10 hours, this CEO of a global company with over a 1,000 employees sat in business class while this guy in HR was living it up in business class. The flight landed and he got into the taxi on the other side and the driver asked him, how was your flight? And he said, he told him everything that had happened and then eventually he said to him, do you know, that really reminds me of what Jesus, my savior, has done for me. Because Jesus entered into my place so that I could enter into his place. And for my sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. He stood in my place so that I could sit on his throne. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know this gospel? Do you know this grace upon grace? And what my friend asked that taxi driver, I now ask you, was Paul's gospel, is it your gospel tonight? And is this gospel of grace the gospel that's changed everything about your life? From the top to the bottom, from the left to the right, from your past, present, and eternity in heaven. It's all about his grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. And when God is for you, who can be against you? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect that will stick? Well, none. Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was risen again. Amen. Amen. May we stand and sing.